Well, a couple of things. First, <clears throat> we are in a capital campaign, so at least give you an update on Sundays. We'll get you an update. Um, <clears throat> as far as the number of families who have made pledges at this point, which is our primary number, we're up to 181, um, which is a good number, um, but not as, as high as I would want it to be. Um, we did have someone in the first service shout out 182 at this moment. Uh, like they went and did it real quick. You are welcome to do that as well. Um, just to have in mind, uh, so I think there's 300, my opinion, and I'll verify this, there's 300 plus giving families in our church. And so this would indicate 120 to 150 people who could be pledging aren't. So here's, here's what I want from you guys, because this is the number the most important to me. Um, what I want from you guys is, uh, this week, if you're like, listen, I would pledge, but I've got a problem. I, I'm not happy with this, or I'm not happy with that, or I would pledge except for this, I would pledge except for that. I want an email from you. Um, to me directly, cleg at southspring.org. Okay? So this week, I would like to get between 100 and 150 emails directly from the members of the church saying, hey, here's my issue, here's my problem, here's my question, here's my whatever, here's my... Now, you may be like uh, me, wired a little bit more sanguine, a little bit more, you know, every day is a new day kind of person like I am, okay? And so you, you may be going like, oh, right, capital campaign, I need a pledge, right? So if that's you, you can either write me an email explaining that, which would be fine, or instead of that, you can just pledge. And so I would like to see this week, I'd like to get about 100, 150 emails or see this number increase by 100, 150 this week. So that's what I'm asking for from the church is either, hey, you know what? We're on board. We're going to pledge the amount between you and God. I, I'm never, that's never my thing. My brain doesn't even concern itself with that particularly. Um, we'll do whatever we do with what we have. But that is the number of people, the families in our church who have decided to, to pledge that to me is vital for the unity. And so um, one of those two things would be great. Either a whole bunch of emails explaining here's why I'm not pledging or a whole bunch of increase in the pledges. Um, no matter what the number is, that doesn't concern me. The numbers are fine. The rest of the numbers are fine. Um, we have pledged. We got that number. We have pledged over $3 million. Um, we are between pledges and what was already in place. We are more than two thirds of the way there towards our goal. That number's fine. This, this is on track with what I would hope. It's great. It's an amazing miracle of God to be where we are from that perspective. So um, there you go. So, so this is a, this is, these, these are, those two are healthy numbers for where we are in the process. Um, that's great. But I would love to hear from our members um, either, oh gosh, I'll get on that, make a pledge, or here's, here's why I'm, I'm hesitant to do so. Um, I would love to hear those things. All right, so good. And by the way, some of you, the person who, by the way, shouted out the 182 was, was Cooper Ezel. Some of you know Cooper well. Cooper was the student who, when he was a student, would raise his hand and ask questions in the middle of the service sometimes, which I love. By the way, you're welcome to do that. You're, you're, I know it freaks you out to do it. It doesn't bother me at all. And in fact, um, last week, um, I made an error in the sermon and if someone had caught it and raised their hand, they could have said like, hey, didn't you mean, and I could have looked it up, but regardless, regardless, I was able to find this and discover this. So let me, let me hook you up with this because this, it's worth hearing. Um, so let me know the mistake. I got in a hurry last week and I had read a commentary that connected two things and it connected them in a specific way, which I'm going to show you in a second, which is really cool. 
And I connected them, in a, being in a hurry to, to make this connection, I made a bigger connection, or a different connection than was there. The leaders of Israel, after generations of disconnection from God and His Word, uncover the law, and they reintroduce it to God's people. You remember I talked about that last week. However, that happens at least twice. Not just once, twice. Once right before the exile um, to Babylon, once right before the story of Daniel, etc., with Josiah and his priest Hilkiah and a prophetess named Huldah. Again, fascinating story, worth studying. You can find the details of it in 2 Kings chapter 22 and surrounding passages. I read from those passages last week. Um, that, that happened around 620 BC. Okay. Um, uh, after the return from exile, it happened again with Nehemiah and Ezra. It happened with Nehemiah and Ezra probably around 450 BC, so close to 200 years later, it happened again. And the details are what we looked at in Nehemiah chapter 8. So there are a lot of amazing linkages between these two rediscoveries of God's law, but they are not the same event. They're two different events. They are, they are linked in some really powerful ways. So for example, when Josiah and Hilkiah found the law and it was read and they took it to Huldah to explain it because apparently there was no one in the, in the area who could really understand it well. So they took it to the prophetess Huldah. She explained what was going on with it. They understood, oh my goodness, we should be preparing to, to experience Passover now. So they immediately did. When Nehemiah and Ezra found the law which we're referencing in Nehemiah last week, when they found the law and it was read, they quickly responded with a celebration of the Feast of Booths, which they suddenly realized we're supposed to be celebrating that. So you can see all the crossovers between these two accounts as a priest and a leader, a political leader and a priest and others find the law, they bring it to the people, the people immediately respond with repentance and celebration and a feast. It's again fascinating to see these connections. In my crossover, I connected them one with the other and I even described them as the same event, which they are not. They're not the same event. They are certainly amazingly powerful in their connection, not the same event. They are each special and worthy of their own study, which I would recommend it. Nehemiah 8 and 2 Kings chapter 22. So I just wanted to clear that up um, to make sure that that was not something that people got confused um, in last week or that, that you heard you were confused because I was confusing. I wouldn't want that to happen. So... Um, okay, today we need to jump into 1 Samuel, um, and for those who have joined us since Advent, which was right before Advent was the last time we were in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and uh, Paul took us through 1 Samuel chapter 7, which we'll reference here, I want to catch you up in the historical account of Samuel. We begin the book being introduced to a man named Elkanah who had two wives. One of them, Hannah, had no children. Despite the fact that their account starts near the end of the era of Judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this was a faithful family. They came to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, to celebrate what God was doing and His faithfulness to the people. At one of those times, Hannah was praying, and the priest at the time, Eli, um, Eli thought she was drunk. But in fact, she was asking God for a child. God provided a child. He gave her a son, and she dedicated her son to God's service in the tabernacle. This is Samuel, that son. 
she thanks God with a stunning prayer that we unpacked um, all together. Again, I would recommend going back and looking at some of these if you weren't there for them or if you've forgotten them. At some very early age, Samuel was literally called by God, as in Samuel, Samuel, his name being called by God. God told this young man that he was about to have, that he was going to have a major role in some big things that God was going to be doing. God's plans included the judgment of Eli's family and the establishment of Samuel to lead his people. What follows soon after that um, is a devastating battle with the Philistines. In the battle with the Philistines, the Philistines steal the ark and they destroy the tabernacle and they utterly defeat God's people. In the process, Eli and his sons die. Soon, God brings such demoralizing problems on whichever Philistine city is holding the ark that after just a few months of hot potato, uh, they send the ark directly back to the boundary of Israel. Then, after God has utterly defeated the Philistines by himself with no help from God's people, um, the people settle into an era of peace. But before the era of peace can begin, um, Samuel gathers the people together to worship together, all together, rightly, in spirit and in truth. They're going to worship together. And what happens? Well, what happens is uh, the Philistines fall on them in the middle of their time of worship. While they're worshiping, the Philistines attack. And God sends a great thunder. We get no more detail than that. That God absolutely terrifies, demoralizes, and destroys the Philistines all by himself, um, in this great second defeat of the Philistines and while Samuel is leading the people to worship. It is such a defeat that Samuel names the site Ebenezer and sets up a giant stone there because it is a stone of helping. Samuel says, thus far, God has helped. Samuel then spent several decades leading Israel in a time of peace. But later in life, he attempts to put his sons, who are like Eli's sons, um, unjust, taking bribes, ungodly men, and he seeks to put them in a position of authority, so the people instead demand a king. Samuel is upset by this. As we talked about last week, he is so angry that he prays. Um, a great rule for all of us. When we get angry, a great response. When we're hurt, when we take it personally, it's a good time to stop and pray. Samuel has a great habit of this, but it seems that God is upset too. He says, they've not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. They've always rejected me off and on, and now you're getting a taste of it, and this is them rejecting me as king, not you. So, what's the problem? Kingship isn't bad. This is, this is a problem because it feels like in this passage, like God is, is politically opposed to kings, but he clearly isn't. We see, like we talked about it back in Deuteronomy 17, he gives the guidelines for what a king is supposed to look like. Um, kingship is a part of his promises to Israel, that he promises them that there will be kings. In fact, he promises them that the Messiah would come from a line of kings. Isn't that wild when you consider that? That Jesus Christ was going to come from a line of kings, not a line of priests. So that was part of what was prophesied about Jesus, about the Messiah, as we come from a line of kings. So it can't be that God is just philosophically opposed to monarchy, that he just thinks that's always a bad idea. Um, so there's got to be more to it than this. In fact, when Jacob blesses his sons, listen to Jacob's blessing for Judah. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be obedience of the peoples. See, Judah is being blessed with this. You will be the king of my people, of the people of Israel. You're gonna, the, the scepter will belong to you. That's the, 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 the king's scepter, going to be you. By the way, just as a side note, as a sneak preview, I want you to also hear the blessing to Benjamin. Listen to the blessing to Benjamin in Genesis 49, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. Nothing about kings in the promise to Benjamin. Hold on to that. You'll need it over the next few weeks. <clears throat> the common view then is this. God intended something special for the kings that he would choose for his people. God has a model of kingship. And God's model of kingship is the shepherd king. It's the king who leads the people to follow God. It's the ones who lead the people to follow God into battle who leads the people to worship God, who leads the people to study, know, and obey God's law. That's his model of king. That a king is almost like a priest. There's, there's a crossover here with king and priests. In fact, remember back in Deuteronomy 17 that one of the instructions for the king was that he write his own copy of the law. And listening uh, this week to a podcast about this, their, their belief was that this meant the law, like all of it, not just those passages of Deuteronomy 17, but that a king had to write their own copy of the law, all 611 laws found in the Torah. And then he was supposed to keep his own copy handy. That's, that's impressive if that was the responsibility. I mean, any of it is impressive as a responsibility. In fact, I will just tell you, the podcaster lamented the fact that we don't require all of our presidents to write their own copy of the Constitution. That would probably be good for all of us if every president, before they could be sworn in, had to sit down and handwrite their own copy of the Constitution. I agree. Um, all right, so the, this, this is the, he wants a royal priesthood. That's something that God wants for his people is a royal priesthood. So the common view then is that what's frustrating to God in this isn't that they want a king, but it's the way they want a king and why they want a king. The timing is all wrong. The timing is wrong. God wants to bring them a king, and he's going to, by the way. But it's not going to be the kind of king they would choose for themselves. And so he has their idea why they want The timing is wrong. It's their decade or two ahead. It's their timing not God's timing. The motive is wrong. It's their motives, not God's motives. We'll look at that in a second. As Christians, I think it's a wonderful question for us to ask ourselves. Are we, do we quickly settle for our model of leadership versus God's model of leadership? How quick are we to do that, to embrace our model of leadership at any level, whether we're talking political or in the church? Think of how many churches right now are suffering or have died in the last few years because they chose self-absorbed, narcissistic, charismatic um, uh, leaders who were great at drawing a crowd and putting on a show until they fell and the entire thing fell apart. They chose based on what seems good to us versus what seems good to God. And so it's, it's vital that as leaders in churches, whether we're leadership board or pastors or staff or whatever it is, or leaders in the family or leaders in the community, that we humbly pursue God's model of leadership, not ours. 
Look at what, the way this plays out. 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. By the way, what a great verse to read on your birthday. Isn't that good? <laughs> Everybody said happy birthday. The church way of doing that is apparently, Behold, you are old. Um, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. I, I don't know how to deal with this. Every time I read stuff like this in the Bible, I, 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 wanna, I want somebody to unpack this for me, why Samuel isn't horrified that his sons aren't following this. Like, I don't know why we don't get a whole chapter about how grieved Samuel is and how horrified Samuel is and how angry Samuel is about that. I, I think this would be one of those, like if, if the church came to me and said, hey, behold, your children are rebels, I would go like, then I quit, because apparently all I need to be doing is focusing on them. Like, I, I don't, I don't, my mind doesn't understand this. Um, another person who shares my birthday is um, David Livingston, the Dr. Livingston, I presume, from the, that, that only hand, did, Paul was like, no one, we were like, no one's going to know who that is. It was, but the missionary to Africa, who, who famously, that's the question that he gets asked. Anyway, uh, it's also his, I mean, he's dead, but it would also be his birthday today. Um, and, uh, and, and his family, he was in Africa and failed to invest in his family, and his family did not do well. I remember researching him as a kid and being horrified and going, I think it's really cool that he was a missionary in Africa. I don't know if he chose right. Like wrestling through that, can, that, can you choose this and not lose that, like, what a, what a hard thing to do. And I, I'm just confessing to you, I don't get that. I don't understand why we don't have that. Maybe it was all happening, and we just don't have it. Maybe Samuel had been horrified and in prayer and was faced before God for decades, praying for the souls of his sons, um, and, and nothing had changed, nothing. I don't know, but regardless, let's get back to the actual storyline that we have. The people are now... In, they've decided, we want a king, you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways, give us a king to judge us like other nations. Even their language implies they have no idea what they're talking about. What do they want their king to do? Judge them. They're just coming out of what era? The judges. They, that's what they think kings do. We want a judge to king over us. I mean a king to judge over us. I mean a are those the same thing? They're not the same thing. And by the way, that's going to show up in the next couple of chapters several times in a very Hebrew way. But just to clarify, let's jump down to the end of this section and read the way they say it the next time. And this will clear it up for us. 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20 says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is their motivation for wanting a king. Fascinating. They literally take one of the lines out of God's job descriptions to go before you and fight your battles. And they're going to take it out of God's job description and stick it into a person's job description. Who they want is Samson. They want Samson back. They want the nutcase, psychopathic killer who took who would slay a thousand people with a piece of dead animal. That's who they want back. Someone who would go out before them and wipe out Philistines in the thousands, and they could just sit back and watch while they didn't have to do anything. They want a Samson. They want their, their standard. What is their standard? They want a warrior king like other nations, a killer who is scary, who is warlike, who's wealthy, and who's physically impressive. That's what they want. And boy, are they going to get it. 
God's standard for his king is what? God wants a man after his own heart. They want someone very, very different. I believe that even though this is decades later, can you imagine poor Samuel standing in front of the rock going, let me get this straight, you want someone to fight your battles for you? We put a whole rock up to remind ourselves who does that. Y'all have forgotten about the rock? Have you forgotten about the fact that we named this whole region God helps us? Yes, they have totally forgotten about that. What we need is a person to do that for us instead of God doing it for us. God has utterly destroyed. Remember just for us, now it's been decades for them, so we cut them a little slack. But for us, it's one chapter. The last chapter, God wiped out the Philistines. And how many Israelites died in that battle? None. And yet, you know what they want? They want a king to go out before them and fight. How frustrating. We see God do this out of his patience and love for us. He hates divorce. But then he allows Moses to create a law to protect divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. Him being patient with us. God doesn't need a temple, doesn't particularly seem to want one, but he allows David and then Solomon, David to gather the resources and Solomon to build one, even though he accepts it, fine, make a temple. He doesn't clear, he clearly doesn't need one. And now the people want a king and God has something better in mind. Fine. You can have your king. God gives Samuel two instructions. Despite the fact that he has a better plan, he tells Samuel, number one, do what they ask. And number two, warn them. There's a lot of parenting that I'm not going to be able to unpack in this section. I will reference it here and there, but in this section, there's a lot of parenting advice. We're going to see Samuel act like the faithful eldest child in the family, and all the others act like rebellious kids, all the other kids. 1 Samuel 8.10 begins with the word, so. And I'm just going to stop there. Because what you have is a very direct correlation. God says, do something, so Samuel does it. He just does it. God tells him, and he does it. Notice the direct cause and effect. God says to warn them, next word, so. And you know what's going to be is, so he warned them. You know that's what's about to happen. Here's a good question for us. I don't know about you, but I complain a lot to God about not knowing what his plans are. Um, I I really want to know what God wants me to do in any given situation. Do you want me to do this or do you want me to do this? What is it that you want me to do? Just tell me what you want me to do. and Just tell me. Now, here's the question, though. The question we need to learn to ask ourselves is, if we did know what God wanted us to do, would we do it? When God is clear, maybe part of why God isn't giving us, telling us exactly what we ought to be doing is because he's already done it before and we're not doing it. And so maybe that's what's holding up us getting more insight into the plan is we've not followed step one yet. Hey, go warn the people. So he goes and warns the people. We're going to see this play out exactly the other direction in regards to Saul. Then what we see is God gives Saul direct instructions and then Saul decides something else would be better. Saul has a different plan in mind. When he sees it, this is the plan. What is that price that we would say? What if God calls us to do something sacrificial or unpopular? What if he calls us calls us to do something financially challenging or for most of us, just uncomfortable? If God says, this is the lifestyle I want for you. And we go, yeah, but there's another one that I want. What if it's just Hey, you know what? I want you to talk to this person in your life about Jesus and maybe use the name Jesus. 
That's scary, but maybe you do that. Well, man, that might make me less popular, or they might think bad things about me, or they, whatever it happens to be. There's a lot of things that God has told us to do that we're not doing yet. So what is the price for our willingness to obey? This is the question that always strikes me with this, and I love this with Samuel. When Samuel is so quick every time, it's just like Nehemiah. Do this, all right, then I'll do that then. That'd be great. Be prepared to see something different when we get to Saul. Okay, so back to the whole verse. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. There you go, exactly what you'd expect. He told all the words, not some of the words, he told all the words. It was immediate obedience, it was complete obedience. This is what you want me to do. The people are apparently radically naive about kings and what that means. So before I read out the warnings that God gives Samuel to give to the people, I want you to hear God's picture of this utopia future covenant that he has in mind for them. The prophecy from the book of Micah about this future. Ready? And then we're going to see how different that is from what Samuel's going to predict for them. <clears throat> Micah 4.3. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They sit every man under his vine and under his own fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There's God's picture. Peace. Harvest instead of war. Now listen to how different his desire for utopia for his people and how it's going to be sidelined by the people's choice in a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 11. This is Samuel warning them. Ready for a king? He said, these will be the ways. So let me just comment, by the way. This is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. Shockingly, there have been people who have used this passage to say kings are supposed to act like this. That is not what's going on here. This is not, here's how kings are supposed to behave. It's, this is how kings are going to behave. Okay. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and, be his, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. See your pattern? You see the word take show up a few times? He will take, and he will take, and he will take, and he will take. And he will appoint, and he will appoint. By the way, appoint here just means a sign. He's going to give them a responsibility. And this is military, right? He's going to give military instructions. He's going to choose your son, and you're going to go, oh, my son is honored. And then, his, then your son is going to be the one peeling potatoes. Just deal with it. Because guess what? When you have a king, you don't get to say, man, no thanks. That's off the table. The Hebrew word in verse 15, by the way, just to kind of darken this up completely for you. The Hebrew word in verse 15 that indicates uh, officers, it literally means one of two words, official so meaning like a civil servant, but the most common usage is eunuch. 
so that this is, this is a, there is a sacrifice that's going to be going on here for your sons and maybe your daughters that's not going to necessarily be all that honorable. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. Don't you like the escalating effect there? He's going to take you the best young men and, and donkeys. <laughs> he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Kings mean armies, and armies mean taxes. You already give 10% if you're part of the Jewish faith. If you're practicing, you give at least 10%, maybe up to 20% in the temple between temple taxes and tithes. We'll get ready for at least another 10% now to go to your king and to his armies. So I'm just curious. This seems appropriate. Anybody else doing taxes right now? About now? A few of you? Yeah. Fun stuff, huh? It's just awesome. Um, is your, if, have you spotted this pattern that governments get smaller over time? Have you spotted that pattern? Yeah, me neither. That they become less intrusive in your life over time? No, you've not seen that one either, huh? Um, I'm, so I figure that I'm still about, here we are in the middle of March, I, we're, I'm about two months from getting to keep any of my money. Um, I don't know if you've ever done the numbers, but it's sometime between May 1st and about May 15th that, I, that everything until then goes to the government. Um, everything I make from about January 1st until somewhere between May 1st and May 15th goes to the government. So I'm only two months out from getting to keep some money. I'm so excited about it. Um, kings mean servants. Kings mean the abuse of power. Kings mean seasons of war, and war means your sons will die. You want your king to go ahead of you in battle instead of God? You didn't like that whole we win the battle and no one dies thing, huh? Okay. Okay, well, then you'll get a king, and let's see if it continues to play out that way. Who's going to work the fields and defend your homes, by the way, while your sons and your husbands and your fathers are off to war? Who's going to be taking care of all that kind of stuff? Um, the women who he does not also conscript into different roles in his kingdom. That's who will have to be doing it. One of the greatest propaganda moments in all of human history was the introduction of Rosie the Riveter. You guys know her, right? So Rosie the Riveter, who, who made all the women proud that they could be part of the war effort, that they could stay at home and instead of holding their babies, instead of uh, tending their children and raising them and, and, and doing all the different cool things that women got to do in the 1930s and 40s, now they were going to get to go and work long, long times in the uh, factories to make bullets because after all their sons and their husbands and their dads, they all needed to go kill each other. And so we needed the women to be making, uh, riveting together tanks and bombs so that they could do that. Almost half a million Americans died in World War II, Americans alone. Um, and we got off easy compared to most of the other industrialized nations. Four million servicemen went to go risk their lives and one in eight of them died so that we could celebrate Rosie the Riveter, right? Half a million men in their prime, gone. Welcome to kings. This is what it looks like when this type of thing happens. around. This is, this is the image that he's trying to create for them. You think this is going to be great. Yay, we're going to have a king like everybody else, and he can ride a chariot into battle, and he can make us all proud of him, and all of our sons can run ahead of his chariots and catch all the arrows from the enemy so that he doesn't. Yay! This is the picture he's creating for them. This will literally become a season for war. This has not been the case for Israel up until now. There's not been a season for war. It's going to happen. Look at 2 Samuel 11, 
And when we get here, this is one of the toughest passages in all of the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. Isn't it great? It's so pretty. Springtime is so beautiful. It's when the flowers come out. Um, it's when the fruit begins to be produced. It's when the animals start reproducing. And it's when all the men start driving sharp things into each other. That's the picture that's created by this. It's a season of death and war. That's what's going on there. How many Philistines, we asked, how many Philistines died in the battle with, how many Israelites died in the battle with God and the Philistines? None. Verse 18, and in that day, you will cry out to your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. This is, this is great parenting, even as hard as it is, and I'm troubled by it, just like you are. But that's, that's the situation, isn't it? That when you've got that 10-year-old boy who, I don't want to wear a coat, right? We're going someplace in November. It's gonna, we're going to be there overnight. We're going to be at the zoo. We're going to be whatever. And he's like, well, I don't want to wear a coat because obviously it means you're some kind of a horrible weenie or something, I guess, if you wear a coat. I don't know what it is about 10-year-old boys that we are somehow like, no, that's, well, that will show weakness to other people. I, I, doesn't make any sense, but it is how we're wired. And so we do. I don't want to wear a coat. And dad says, I mean, okay. By the way, don't you wish you could hear God's tone of voice when he says stuff to you so that you would know if he was saying it that way? Okay. <laughs> You'd be like, I mean, no, whatever I said, the other, the other one. Okay, if you don't want to wear a coat, I mean, you're going to get cold, buddy. And here's what's going to happen. About an hour in, you're going to start complaining about it being cold. And I'm going to say, dude, I'm sorry you're cold. Because that's your choice. Right? That's exactly what's going on right here. There's going to come a day we want a king. Okay. There's going to come a day when you're going to come to me and beg for a coat. I'm cold. Uh-huh. Bummer you didn't bring a coat, huh? It's not God being vindictive. This isn't God going like, man, I told you so. This is God saying, man, wouldn't it be great to listen? Wouldn't it be great to wait on me? Wouldn't it be great to see what I have for you? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great for you to trust that a coat's probably a good idea? Wouldn't that be great? One of the hard things about studying God's Word and commentaries is that the people who wrote these commentaries over the last 2,000 years are geniuses. Um, they're brilliant so often. And you come across lines and you just think, man, wish I'd written that. That's pretty cool. This one struck me. Ready? I've updated a little bit because it was written a long time ago. I've updated a little bit modern language, but this is not my thought. Hasty decisions and quick emotional responses make for long and leisurely repentance. Ouch. Say it again. Hasty decisions and quick emotional responses make for long and leisurely repentance. There is no prayer in this passage from anyone but Samuel. No one else is talking to God. The elders of Israel have come to Samuel and given him instructions. We want a king. And he warns them. He prays multiple times. There is no submission. We want, we want, we want. And he's asking, are you sure you want to replace your republic with a monarchy? Right now you have the rule of law, and it's God's law, so it's a theocratic republic. Does it get any better than this? One commentary asked it this way. This is the question Samuel is asking his people. Where do you want your king's throne? On earth or in heaven? There's a good question for all of us, isn't it? Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, I don't want to wear a coat. This actually sounds that way, doesn't it? No, but there shall be a king over us. 
that we also may be like the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Probably good that we don't have that unpacked more in the Bible. That probably was not a, probably colorful. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, all these elders who have gathered with him at Ramah, probably 12 of them, and he sends them home. Every man go back to your city. Samuel had obeyed. Once again, because he is a good son, Samuel checked in first, Samuel checked in in the middle, and Samuel checked in at the end of this conversation. You got anything else? Are we good? Anything I need to change? This is the plan. He does it just like he's supposed to while the other children are in disobedience. The parenting lessons are just rich here. Samuel checks in over and over. So Samuel sends the elder representatives back to their home regions. They go back to report to their people. I am sure all excited about getting to meet their king. They want a Samson who can lead them into battle and slay their enemies, who's physically impressive, who's wealthy, charismatic, and they're mostly going to get what they want. Um, but they're going to, the frailties of Samson are going to show up. The frailties of Samson don't show up until later in Samson's life. They're going to show up almost on day one with Saul that we'll get to see. So if you will stand with me, and I want to encourage us, this passage, these passages, maybe you didn't know, or maybe you've not heard that there is a God who has better plans in store for us than the ones we have for ourselves. That there's a God who loves us more than we love ourselves. And he has something better in mind, something more complete in mind, more perfect for us in mind. And he does, by the way, he does at this time. I think this is about the time that, that God's king is being born. Um, somewhere around at this time in history, this, these moments in history is about the time that God's king for his people is being born. The shepherd king that he would choose. And it's, he's still a human and he's still flawed, um, but he will have more of what, they, what he wants. And instead they're going to get the kind of king, the Samson kind of king they want. A judge who will fight their enemies for them. Instead of looking to God to judge them and fight their enemies for them. These very things. So when we look at our own lives, I would say it, it, at the natural for us at this point during a time of invitation, we are invited to be still and to talk to God, to sing, to pray um, up here or where in our seats and to ask God, is there something there that I'm holding on to? Is there something I need to repent of? Is there a my way that I have stuck with? Have I made that oath with God as my witness? I'm choosing this and God and everybody else can just deal with it. Here's the lifestyle I choose, and everybody else can just deal with it, even God. Here's what I've chosen. Here's what I've decided. Here's what I'm holding and hoarding on for myself, my way, not God's way. And we know it. Listen, if we don't know it, we can trust God over time to reveal it to us. That's different. How many of us, we know there's things in our lives that we go, God, God wants this out, and yet we're still embracing it. Maybe you don't know that God personally and you need to ask him to, you need to accept his free gift, his offering to be your Lord and Savior and to save you from the consequences of all this junk, whether we, whether we follow through with or to the degree we follow through with it or don't follow through with it or not, but to save us regardless. If you don't know him, we'd love to introduce you to him. Um, if you do, then I think we need to celebrate what it is to have God as king. Zechariah 9, 9 through 12 says this, greatly rejoice O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. The very words of God. If you don't have a home, a family home, a community, a church, and you're welcome, you've been through the welcome home process, you got to talk to Lance and others, and you're ready to join our broken and dysfunctional family, now's the time to let us know that as well. Listen to what the Spirit has for you.